Genesis 25, 19 through 28. And again, this is God's word. And let me pray to him and ask his blessing on it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us every word of scripture. We thank you because we know that we need every word that you have inspired and breathed out. And our souls need to see the Lord Jesus in every part of the scriptures. We need the whole Christ from the whole scripture. And we pray, our God, that you would give us more of the Lord Jesus this morning. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would convict us of sin in our lives and that you would lead us to um, saving repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, our God, that you would do a great work of grace in our lives. We pray that you would give us the same grace that you gave the patriarchs. And so, our God, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would bless it this morning as only you can do. And we pray that you do this for your glory and honor and for our salvation and satisfaction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. You'll find that on page 19 if you're using a copy of scripture. And there, Moses now writes, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. They called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God indoors forever. Well, one of the great questions that the church has wrestled with and theologians have wrestled with throughout church history, one of the great questions is what role does godly parenting play in the salvation of our children? That is one of the great questions that the minds of God's people have been captivated with. When I was in seminary, it was a question that over that four, four and a half year period, I had many discussions and debates. What role, if any, does godly parenting play in the salvation of our children? And that question is such a difficult question because there are uh, those cases, there are many cases in which there are extremely godly homes with godly parents who have nurtured their children in the scriptures, who have brought them up in the truth of God's word, who have raised them to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet in their later years, none of those children are walking with the Lord, and, and you wonder, what happened? Why have these children not embraced 
the Lord Jesus the way their parents did. And then you have those other cases where you have a home of ungodly parents or hypocrites or uh, formalistic, nominalistic Christians where uh, there was no real true spiritual vitality in the home, where godliness was not modeled, where the scriptures were not read, where dependence and trust in God didn't happen. And there are those children in those homes that some of them at least come to know Jesus Christ. And so it makes the question a difficult question. What role, if any, does godly parenting play in the salvation of our children? And the Bible has much to say about the need to be godly parents. And the Bible has much to say about the need to nurture our children and to bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And yet it's a question that we are, we are often beset by. I have a friend, and she, she is actually married to one of my close friends and grew up in a home with a father who for a time was a minister but is either severely backslidden now or was just a complete hypocrite and is apostate. And my friend's wife, she is a, an extremely godly woman, while the rest of her siblings are proud and arrogant, have rejected the faith because, in part, they saw the hypocrisy in the home. Now, I, I mention those stories because it is impossible for us not to go to that place, when we come to the account of Isaac and the birth of Jacob and Esau. It is impossible for us not to go there to that place because here the patriarchal family, the covenant family, the ones God has set apart for himself are seen as the dysfunctional family. Here, those who have been given the promises of God, those uh, to whom the promises of God are being passed down, those from whom the Redeemer is going to come, those who are the very offspring of Abraham, the children and the grandchildren of Abraham are seen to be extremely sinful and worldly and fleshly and dysfunctional. And the Bible doesn't hide that dysfunction from us. The Bible sets that dysfunction out in all of its ugliness, in all of its nuances. We see here in this text how uh, Isaac and Rebekah, who had started off so well, the son of Abraham, the one who God had, had singularly chosen to be blessed in the covenant, to have redemption, who is redeemed, from whom Jesus is going to come, the greater son of Abraham, that Isaac here, starting off as a quiet young boy, starting off in that ordinary way as one who had received God's grace and yet nothing spectacular about him at the end of his life really finishes very poorly. And you see the impact it has on his children. And you see the impact that has on their children. And you see the impact that has on their children and so on throughout Israel's history. And so important is this section that it will resurface throughout the rest of what God says to Israel in the Bible. And it will come to that great statement in Romans 9 where the Apostle Paul setting out the great mysteries of God's sovereignty and election and why some Israelites believed and, and most didn't and what made the difference between them. And Paul will say it is grace. It is sovereign grace. God said, Jacob, I have loved Esau. I've hated the older shall serve the younger before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God, according to election might stand so important is this passage for us that it takes up the most central part of one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, one of the most controversial chapters, but one of the greatest chapters that summarizes and encapsulates for us why some believe on Jesus Christ and why others do not. 
And as we consider the dysfunction of this family, as we consider the history of, of uh, Jacob especially, and we, we look at the very beginning of Jacob's life, we, we see that really what's happening is God is teaching us all about his sovereignty. He is teaching us in, in these short verses so many things about his sovereignty. He is showing us that behind his promises and behind the covenant family and behind everything happening in Abraham's family and, and among his descendants, God is working his purposes out. That what lay behind all of the dysfunction in that home and, and everything that happens to that family are God's eternal purposes. And it doesn't take much to see that, even at the beginning. It's very interesting. We're going to see, first of all, how God's sovereignty really comes to the forefront in that he is sovereign over human life. And in, in that sense, he is able to do what we are not able to do. You see that, don't you, in the, the sort of the recapitulation. Remember, that theme of barrenness has been present throughout the patriarchal narrative. It will, it will resurface again. Sarah, the one who was said to be the, the mother of the nations that would be blessed, the princess over all the nations who would be blessed in the Redeemer, had no children. She was barren. She couldn't fulfill God's promises on her own. She couldn't produce life with Abraham together apart from God. No amount of hoping for that or longing for that or desire for that could bring that about. God alone was sovereign over life. God alone could do what Abraham and Sarah couldn't do. And here we see that same, that same principle resurfacing in the life of Isaac and Rebekah leading up to the birth of the twins. And notice that as Moses records this for us, he tells us that uh, in the history of Isaac, in the generations of Isaac, that notice verse 21, Isaac, we're told, prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, it's a great statement of trust. Isaac is modeling for us what it is to be a believer. He is acknowledging that there is nothing that they can do to produce life. There is nothing that they can do to take this matter into their hands. Now, that is a, that is a sort of a, a symbol. It's a parable that what God is teaching here in his dealings, in his covenantal dealings, what God is teaching here because redemption is, is always the goal in the patriarchal narrative, God is teaching that just as physical life is an impossibility for us to produce on our own, that barrenness teaches us that, that, that there's, it's out of our control. We are unable to do that. So in the spiritual realm, God will fulfill his promises and God alone is sovereign over spiritual life. He is, he is not merely talking about physical life and not merely teaching us about his sovereignty over physical life, he is teaching us that if there is any life, physically or spiritually, if we are alive, it's because God exercised his sovereign working in bringing us into this world. If we are alive spiritually, it is because God has worked sovereignly in our hearts by his grace to bring us from death to life. That is the biblical story. That is the narrative of scripture. And in so much as that is the the, the story of scripture, and in so much as we see that in the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we are taught that we are to rely on the sovereign God for everything. That is, that is the application. It is a straightforward application. There is nothing in our lives that we ought not be relying on God for. And Isaac here is acting in faith, and he is trusting the Lord. He's crying out, to the Lord to give children 
to his barren wife. And notice that the Lord answers that prayer. And we're told that Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And no sooner are we told that, that she conceived, we are told that the children were struggling together within her. Now, very interesting that um, this, and we'll talk about this in more detail, it is a, the idea of the Hebrew is it's a, a, a clashing together, a crashing together. It is not just a mere light little struggle. It is enmity in the womb. God has answered the prayers of Isaac and, and Rebecca, and he has given her children. She has conceived and born twins, and yet something's going on in her. And as Rebecca surveys what's happening, as she thinks through what's going on, as she realizes this unusual experience going on within her, Rebecca herself turns to the Lord to inquire of him, What's happening? You see at, at this point that, that Isaac and Rebekah are trusting the Lord. Now, very interesting. One, one theologian noted that um, Rebekah, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. She models for us what we do so often. And, and on one hand, there's something commendable about Rebekah. She goes to the Lord, what's happening within me? She, she turns to him. But what she's really doing, and I want to read this to you. Um, this theologian writes, Rebecca is thinking, if the Lord is hearing my husband's prayer and giving me these children, if this is the Lord, why are things so difficult? It's a fascinating observation. See, she's, she's thinking, she's allowed herself to think, well, if God has answered that prayer for children and has exercised his sovereign working in bringing forth life, why are things not easier? We do that, don't we, so often? Well, but this seemed to be an answer to prayer, and, and now things aren't easy. Now things are hard. Life is very, very hard. Life is very hard for believers. Why? I mean, if the Lord, if the Lord has blessed us, if he's poured his blessings on us, if he, has, if he has drawn us to himself, if he loves me the way he says he loves me in his word, why is life so hard? Um, why are my relationships so hard? Why is this happening in my life? Why is there so much struggle and tension that this particular writer goes on? He says, there's a great lesson for us there. He, he says, I find that many Christians assume if this is the Lord's will, then the situation is going to be easy. Isn't that fascinating? We often think if this is God's will. It's going to be easy, smooth sailing. No, the Lord took the disciples into the storm. Jesus sovereignly took them into the storm. That's a picture. That's also a parable. That all of the storms of life, all the trials, all the difficulties, his loving hand has brought you there. But if this is God's will for me, why isn't it easy? He says, don't confuse living in his will with thinking that things are going to be easy. Don't confuse thinking that living in his will means things are going to to be easy, but here's Isaac and here is Rebecca, and they are acknowledging God's sovereignty. They are acknowledging that he is sovereign over life, sovereign over the circumstances. Secondly, they are acknowledging that he is sovereign over the conflict. There, there is a sense in which things, nothing, nothing here is happening on its own. Nothing here is happening arbitrarily. No one can say, well, the reason there's tension in the womb of Rebecca is because Jacob was not nice to Esau, and he said some really mean things, so you can understand why Esau responded this way. They are in the womb, and they are clashing in enmity, and God is sovereign over that. God has put that enmity there 
in the very womb. It is a picture, isn't it, of Genesis 3.15. It is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It is what we see as those two seeds progress and the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan advance and men fall into one of those two kingdoms, Cain and Abel and the men of Noah's day and Noah and his family and then one of Noah's sons against the other of his sons and as God is everywhere separating. Remember, the God who separated a creation That was the point of the division, a creation, light from darkness, the waters above from the waters below, the animals, each according to their kind, man from the animals, the God who loves separation is the God who has declared war against the evil one and has put that enmity between the two seeds, the two kingdoms to show forth his redeeming grace. And here is another manifestation of that. God is sovereign over these two sons and the enmity and the hostility, even in the womb. Um, it is not, it is not a small detail that this is happening in the womb. It shows, it shows that the very essence of the enmity has always existed, that it's not something new. It explains the hostility in the world. You know, it's amazing to me. It is absolutely amazing to me. No matter how much we watch the news, no matter how much we see the hostility, no matter how much we see it in our own homes, among relationships, with unbelieving relatives, no matter how much we see it, we often find ourselves saying, I don't understand why things are the way they are. And the Bible says God is sovereign over the conflict and that God's sovereignty over that conflict has a purpose and that God is working his plan out through that conflict. You know, Jesus said, I'll never forget, I said this once to an unbeliever I worked with and, and hated, hated this. By the way, much of what we're looking at today, people just absolutely hate to hear. It is the most offensive. And yet it's everywhere in the scriptures. And it explains the world we're in. And, and I said to this, this guy, you know, Jesus said he came to, to bring division and a sword. Now, we'll talk about his sovereignty and salvation in a second and how that happens. But, but, Keep in mind that everyone by nature is alienated from God. So, so Jesus didn't come and say, well, you're good enough and you're not. And you're good enough and you're not. Everyone by nature. Children of darkness. Children of wrath, Paul says. Under the wrath of God. Walking according to the course of the world. Walking according to the, the spirit of disobedience that now works in the sons of disobedience. And everyone by nature there. And then Jesus comes and he brings division because his purpose is to show forth the glories of his kingdom and his sovereign plan and purposes and the majesty of his attributes and the glory of all that he has planned and purposed in the councils of eternity. And here as those two kingdoms and those two seeds are are spreading out, we're told that there's division, there's contention, there's clashing. I, I was at the Jacksonville Zoo this week, and um, one of the most interesting, it's actually quite a nice zoo, one of the most interesting of the, um, the exhibitions there is the, the, the wild hogs, right? When you walk in, they put them right there in the front. First thing you see, it's not the elephants or the zebras. The giraffes are absolutely amazing. Um, I'm reliving my childhood when I go to the zoo, and uh, absolutely amazing. Um, but they put those wild hogs right there, and the whole time, they're just clashing, 
locking tusks the whole time. They're just, and, and that's what Jacob and Esau are doing in the womb. They are, they are wrestling in the womb. They are contending in the womb. They are fighting in the womb. And God has a purpose, and God has, has created that tension with a purpose and that conflict with a purpose. Um, you know, you saw this, didn't you, in the story of Isaac just before this. Remember Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was mocking Isaac. He was representative of the seed of uh, the serpent. He was, he was mocking his brother. There was conflict in the home because God was dividing for himself a people. Now, that leads us to the third and obviously the most significant of what's happening in this family and what's happening with these boys and, and why this account is in the scriptures and why Paul picks it up in Romans 9, and that is that God is sovereign over salvation. That The point of this is that God's grace is sovereignly given to those that God chooses to be gracious to. Um, I, again, there's, there's no way around this. Here are, here are two boys. We'll see that, that Jacob, even in the womb, he's, he's a swindler. He's a, he's a deceiver. He's a supplanter. His name carries with it that he is crooked and conniving. He is the one that will connive that plan to get the birthright. He will lie to his own father. There is nothing in Jacob that deserves salvation, and yet Jacob gets salvation. There is nothing in Jacob that makes Jacob better than Esau, and yet God will redeem Jacob and not Esau. God will be gracious to Jacob and not to Esau. There is nothing in the family that, that is moving toward either son or anyone deserving salvation. The family is entirely dysfunctional. The parents have stopped trusting the Lord. It's a very sad, very sad account. Here, here is the son of Abraham and his bride. His dad is given the greatest of God's revelation. He grows up in the best Christian home he could grow up in. I don't want to underemphasize that this morning. Isaac grows up in the best family with the greatest privileges, but somewhere along the way, he stops trusting the Lord. Now, maybe that's at the point where God says, there's going to be nations that come from you, and there's going to be division, and the older is going to serve the younger, and, and everything in, in Isaac hated that. Everything in Isaac hated the idea that the older, so contrary to the ways of God. And remember, Isaac himself, very interesting, Isaac himself had been treated as if he was the firstborn son by grace. Remember that Ishmael was really the firstborn. And God sent Ishmael away, and by his grace, he said, in Isaac, your seed will be called. Isaac will be the son of promise. Isaac will get redemption. Isaac will get the inheritance. Isaac, by grace, will get the blessing. And somewhere along the way, Isaac failed to realize that principle and treated his sons according to the flesh rather than the promise. Now, this is hugely important to understanding what God is doing sovereignly in salvation as we look at the dysfunction happening in the family, because what, what both Isaac and Rebekah have done is they have ceased trusting the Lord. They have ceased looking at their sons as if their sons belong to the Lord, and they have treated their sons as if they belong to them. That's very, very important for us to get, that when, when parents stop trusting the Lord, and they can even do this, let me say this, in the name of good parenting, I want to be as specific as I can this morning. When, 
when we stop trusting the Lord for the salvation of our children and we stop viewing our children as if they belong to the Lord, whether they are young or grown, when we stop doing that and we only look at them according to the flesh, we will, we will treat them according to the flesh and we will do them a great disservice. Isaac and Rebecca did a great disservice to their children. Isaac should have understood the principle of grace and God's electing purposes, and he should have understood that he didn't deserve the inheritance that he had received, and instead he favors Esau. Now, we're told he favors Esau because of what he gets from Esau. He's proud of Esau. He likes what he sees in Esau. He wishes perhaps he was more like Esau. Esau, remember, is very different than his dad. His dad is very meek and gentle and quiet and ordinary. And Esau is a hunter. And he, he goes on to be uh, a manly man. And perhaps Isaac is seeing that and, and he is envying that. And so he, he loves that about his son. He loves what he doesn't see in himself, what he wished he saw in himself. And he treats Esau as if Esau is there for him alone. Rebecca takes what God has said. She believes what God has said. She realizes that Jacob is to be the one to whom the blessings of God are going to come instead of the older brother and that Esau will serve Jacob and that the history of Esau and the Edomites will be subjection to God's purposes and plans for Israel that come from Jacob. And, and she realizes in some form what God is saying, and yet she shows favoritism to Jacob. And it's a fleshly favoritism. It's not trusting the promises of God. It's not depending on God to fulfill those promises. It's not thanking God for that. She views Jacob as if he is her favorite son. And they show sinful division and preferential treatment because they are not shepherding their children according to the promises of God. Now, very interesting, you even, you're left with the question, you are left with the question, do they even talk about their children? Very sad, isn't it? That here, it seems like a divided house. Isaac favors Esau. Jacob Rebecca favors Jacob. You're left wondering how often or if ever do they have conversations about their children's need for the Lord, for redemption. Um, you almost get the sense that, that the house is completely divided and that the parents have this terrible marriage and that the brothers are at enmity with each other and everything is in disarray. There's nothing commendable about the family of Isaac. There is nothing to be emulated. Notice that we're told um, we're told in verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Very sad statement. That's, that's the reality of that home. Now, in a home like that, we shouldn't expect that any of those children come to know the Lord. The expectation should be that, and one theologian has very, very helpfully said, our children breathe in the air that we breathe out in the home. That is if you're convicted right now, it's unbelievably convicting to me. It should be convicting to us. It is meant to be convicting to us that our children breathe out the air that we breathe in the air that we breathe out in the home. And by human standards, we should expect Jacob to end up exactly as we see Esau ending up. 
because there's no reason. They have not been nurtured. They've not been taught to rely on the Lord. They've not been taught that they belong to the Lord. They've not been here. We don't hear anything about the covenant promises. We don't hear anything about the hope of redemption. We don't, we don't hear that at some point, and, and you like to think that maybe they did at some point, Isaac and Rebecca came together and said, we have royally messed up in the way we've raised our children. Let's get on our knees and pray for their salvation. You hope that happens, but that's not in the text. And so there's a chance that never happens. What, what is so interesting to me about this is that Isaac and Rebekah have a clear word from God, and they ignore it. God says there's going to be two nations. There's going to be enmity, but I'm going to bless the younger. I'm choosing to bless the younger. The older is going to serve the younger. My love is going to rest on Jacob, not on Esau. God says that. God says that. Paul doesn't say that. Hosea 11. I know it's a big pill without an easy coating to swallow. I get that. God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Before the twins were ever born or had done anything good or bad, that my purposes may stand, that my purposes according to the election of grace may stand. But, but you wonder, you, you, you wonder how, how these parents ignored God's word. What a sad, sad story in this home that they, they should have fallen on their knees and said, Lord, please have mercy on our children. And as I, as I prepared for this and I thought about this, how often we hear God's word, we hear it preached, we read it, we, we have it, we listen to sermons, we, we have so much of God's word accessible to us, but how often we just ignore it. We go out, we forget what we've heard, we don't fall on our knees, we don't trust the Lord, we don't cry out for him for the salvation of our children like we should. Every day of our lives, we should be crying out to God for the salvation of our children because their salvation is utterly dependent on his sovereign grace being manifested to them, not on our good parenting. I'm going to say that as clearly as I can. As much as this passage emphasizes the awful effects of bad parenting, And what should be the inevitable outcome because of bad parenting and a rejection of dependence on God and his gospel and his promises and his grace, and as much as it does, the converse is not the truth of scripture. The converse is not not if you just parent your children well enough, they will come to know Jesus. If you just breathe out the air of the grace that God has given you in the home consistently, they will come to Jesus. That is not the converse. The converse is God is sovereign over the redemption of our children, just like he's sovereign over our redemption. I love the hymn, and I love every time we sing the hymn, how sweet and awesome is the place, and why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why was I? I am every bit like Jacob. I am every bit a spiritual swindler like Jacob. I'm every bit as undeserving as Jacob. There's that great story that Charles Spurgeon uh, was preaching on Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and that passage in Hosea, I believe, and then in Romans 9. And, and a woman stood up and cried out, how, she cried out, how could God hate Esau? I mean, besides the fact that you'll go on to see what a wicked man Esau is, as all of us are by nature. And Spurgeon's response was, ma'am, I'm not concerned with how God could hate Esau, but with how he could love Jacob. If you miss that, you miss the point of the passage, you miss the point of Genesis, you miss the point of the Bible, you miss the gospel. 
If ever we come to a place where we think our children deserve salvation because of our godly parenting, we are in a very bad and unbiblical place. If we ever come to a place where we, we don't think that God's grace is, is given to the undeserving, we are in a very de- bad place because all of us are undeserving. All of us fail as parents. All of our best efforts to be godly parents, we will fail. And if you don't think that, you have a very proud heart. If we do not think that our best efforts are still feeble and frail and mixed, we will fail. Now, conversely, I want to go back to what I said. The dysfunction of the home, though, is set out as a negative example. Um, It was, I believe, Soren Kierkegaard who made um, the observation, and, and it's been quoted, it's been cited in different ways, that functionally the, the most dangerous thing for a child to grow up around is not parents who are atheists or agnostics, but parents who stand up every Sunday saying the creeds and the confessions of Christianity and then living the rest of the week as if they didn't believe it or rely on the God they were confessing. So it's less dangerous for a child to grow up in a home with parents who are atheists or agnostics than to grow up in a home where parents Sunday after Sunday confess creeds, say, I believe this, I believe in this, I believe in this, and live the rest of the week like they don't. Because the kids see that. They see the formality. They see the hypocrisy. You know, Isaac, I mean, Esau and Jacob are, are products. They're products of their, their parents. Jacob will go on and show favoritism. He will show favoritism to the sons of his favorite wife. He will show favoritism to, to Joseph and Benjamin because he loved Rachel more than Leah. He, he learned that from his parents. He learned that from his mother who told him to go in and deceive her husband. Um, Esau, all the wickedness that he does, he, he is just living out what he learned in the home. Now, the good news, and I think it is good news, is that despite that, despite the dysfunction, despite all of that, God's purposes according to election stand. He chose Jacob. He loved Jacob. He manifests his grace in Jacob's life. Jacob will not be as cognizant of, of God's grace in his life. Very interesting at the end of his life. And, and I sometimes feel like Jacob when hardships, trials, difficulties come. Somebody told me I was like Eeyore sometimes. Part Tigger, part Eeyore. I'm really messed up. And uh, Jacob is Eeyore. At the end of his life, he, uh, he's like, ah, oh, few and evil. I've been the days of my life. Lord, just take me now. <laughs> I mean, God, God has restored his son, has showing how he's working out his plans and purposes despite all of Jacob's sin, all the large grace. Joseph doesn't have that problem. We'll see that. Joseph recognizes God's grace in his life. He's in prison. He's like, the Lord is with me. <laughs> Falsely accused, thrown in jail. Doesn't know if he's going to get out. The Lord is with me. I know that the Lord is working out his purposes. His dad Few and evil have been the days of my life. Um, God's grace is large to Jacob, and he doesn't deserve it, and you don't deserve God's grace. That's the glory of God's grace. We don't deserve it. Those who are recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ are those who don't deserve that grace. And, And that's where this story falls in redemptive history. And that should make me say... Lord, I, why was I made to hear your voice? Why was I made to hear your voice while thousands make a wretched choice? Um, 
I also think that this is important for us. We, we want to labor to be godly parents. We want to labor to raise our children to know the Lord. We want to we model for them to the best of our ability what it looks like to be parents that repent of our sins and that are trusting them. By the way, if, if parents are not confessing sins and sinful weakness to their children, that, that's a symptom of self-righteousness. That's trying to say, I have it all together. I don't need repentance. I don't need God's grace. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the cross. I don't need the blood. Best thing you can do for your children, young, old, wherever they are right now, is you can model your own sinfulness in confession, confession of sin. You can model your dependence on Jesus by trusting in him, by acknowledging that you fail as parents, that we fail, that we want to shepherd them as we need our own souls shepherded, that we want them to have the same grace that we need. That's why this passage is here. It's teaching us worlds about God's sovereignty. It's teaching us worlds about how we're to respond to God's sovereignty. Um, I do want to also say that I think this passage is teaching us that we need to, we need to learn to uh, requit ourselves from trying to take control of things. Because at the end of the day, what, what Jacob... I'm sorry, what Isaac and Rebecca are doing is they're trying to take control of the situation of their children's lives. They're trying to control their children's lives. And, and God is saying, no, I am in control. I am in control of the fact that you even have children. I am in, in control of any conflicts that are happening, any tensions, any difficulties that are happening. I am in control of the salvation of you and your children. I am sovereign over all of it. And, and the response, what we need to do as we go from this place is we need to say, yes, that was true in Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau's life, and that is true in my life, and that is true of my home, and that is true of every single aspect of my life. And, and the proper response is, I will depend on the God of sovereign grace. I will rely on the God of sovereign grace. Jonathan Edwards has this really wonderful sermon called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. God Glorified in Man's Dependence. That's, that is what Genesis 25 is teaching. God wants us to learn to depend on him, his purposes, his will, his plan, his desires, his sovereignty over our children, the fact that they belong to him. So countercultural, isn't it? Even the church, these things. And, and many are offended by them, and, and they should not offend us. They should drive us to praise the God of sovereign grace and thank him and call on him and rely on him because of all he's done in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the beautiful pictures of Scripture that constantly comes forward is that, and we saw this with Abraham and Isaac, being a type of God not sparing his son. God did not spare his son. Here's... Here is Isaac showing favoritism to Esau. Here's Rebekah showing favoritism to Jacob. And by way of contrast, the true son of Abraham is given up by his father. The eternal Christ is given up by his father for us. In order to redeem us, in order to bring us to himself, in order to lavish us with his grace, God gives his son up for us. He doesn't show favoritism because of things he sees in us that make us, that give us affinity by which he, he thinks we're so wonderful in ourselves. We're sinners. We're undeserving. We were his enemies. He gives up, in a sense, let me say this, he gives up Jacob to redeem Esau's. That's what he does. He redeems us 
by giving up his son for us. That's the beautiful picture of where everything's moving in the gospel and in the story. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we so often act like Isaac and Rebecca with our lives and with our interactions and activity with our children, with our families. We confess our sin this morning, Lord. We confess the ways that we have not relied on your sovereignty and your sovereign purposes and your sovereign grace. We thank you that you have been gracious to us, Lord, as you were to Jacob. We thank you that you have redeemed us when we were undeserving and that there was nothing in us to commend ourselves to you. We thank you that you have made us, Lord Jesus, to hear your voice. We thank you, Father, that you've given your son for us. We thank you that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us, the greater son of Abraham. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have loved your people with an everlasting love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.